Hello! Thanks for downloading this podcast. Just a quick note to say that we've changed the name from Fight Back to the next round. We think the new title gives a more future-facing angle to our conversations with marketing and business leaders as they chat to us about the next round for their businesses. Enjoy this episode and make sure to subscribe. We're planning Series 3 now and it should be with you later this year. This is Fight Back, the innovation podcast. Hello and welcome to Fight Back. I'm your host, Robin Charney. I've been in digital marketing and innovation for over 20 years, having worked at tech brands like Adobe. I now work at AAR, where we help brands to design, build, and drive high-performing marketing ecosystems. I started Fight Back because I wanted to tell a story that wasn't being told. The story of heritage brands and their fight back against disruption. Business innovation is often only being celebrated through the lens of startups these days, They're the engines of growth, we're told, the new model we should all emulate. Heritage brands, on the other hand, are portrayed as yesterday's news, tired, slow, failing. Well, I'm here to celebrate their renaissance. It's kind of a modern day David versus Goliath story, except I'm more interested in the Goliaths, how they're transforming, rebuilding, and growing. In essence, they really are the new Davids. In each episode, I chat with someone leading the fight back from a brand we've all heard of. It can be a fight back in marketing, innovation, or business transformation. I try to make it as bullshit-free and personal as possible, with something for you to take away and apply to your own fight back. This stuff is hard, so I want to share the good news where I can. In this episode, I'm speaking with someone who really inspires me personally. She's a bit of a legend, and someone who has built her career on creating vibrant cultures, energizing teams, and consistently delivering business growth and success. She is UK country manager for WPP, the world's largest marketing services group, and UK CEO of Group M, the world's leading media investment company. So just two big jobs then. In June 2014, she received an OBE in the Queen's Birthday Honours, and in November 2018, she won the Inspirational Leader category at the Ethnicity Awards. She's also a very tired mum. Please welcome Karen Blackett. Hey Karen, welcome to Fight Back. Hey Robin, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I'd love to hear a bit about your story to start with. You know, what was your first job in advertising? How did you get to where you are today with, you know, only only the two big jobs that I talked about? So, look, I started in the industry in the early 90s and I had to sort of zigzag my way in. So, I grew up in uh, Reading, uh, which is known as Mini Barbados, and my mum and dad, <laughs> a typical first-generation sort of immigrants to the UK who wanted me to have a proper career and a profession. So, you know, accountancy, doctor, mm. lawyer, and I did none of those things. Yeah. And I, from an early age, I loved TV advertising and I used to be glued to the box in the living room. And I really wanted to try and get into the industry, but I had no idea how it even worked, how you got in. And I ended up studying what I loved and then just applying for loads and loads of roles and getting rejection after rejection after rejection. And then ended up sort of getting a foot in the door through um, applying for an ad in The Independent to be a media auditor. And at that time, the media auditor was part of an agency, which is now Wavemaker. Um, And I sort of got a foot in the door using part of my degree to become an auditor. And it was in that interview they saw something in me and decided to move me to a different part of the agency to be interviewed in a different part of the agency. And I started as a direct response buyer. 
um, planner bio, which is how I started in the industry. So not quite what I envisioned, but it was a way of getting a foot in the door. And what I have been fortunate to have in my career is sponsors who could see talent, could see something in me and spoke up and advocated for me in the rooms that I did not have access to. So in every role, including the two roles that I have now, I had a sponsor speak up for me and say, this is what you're going to get if you put Karen in that role. And that's been incredibly important as part of my journey. I'm also a first generation Canadian and I you know I love how that kind of immigrant story is is consistent no matter where <laughs> your parents came from no matter what country they came from it's totally. like they you will do was... better than I did exactly. you will have a lot of education and you will have jobs that you know make that I won't tell you I'm proud of you for but I will tell all my friends I'm proud of you about that right? is so true Robin <laughs> unbelievable literally half of Barbados have press cuttings that my mum and dad used to send home yeah. for anything so absolutely it's amazing but I think it makes a certain kind of person and it makes a certain kind of professional, doesn't it? And you've just been named um, one of the 100 Black Britons in 2020. What does that kind of mean to you? Do you know what? That was so humbling and such a shock. Um, And it means a lot because, you know, you had to be nominated by the public and then, you know, they received thousands of nominations and to have been named as one of the 100 that they shortlisted. And what's really important to me, which really makes me appreciative and humble, is that book will be sent out to schools. And I think that's what's so important, the opportunity for people at schools that look like me to see what is possible and to look at the plethora of different careers that people who are black can have in this country. And the fact that we've helped grow and build this country, that's the bit that makes me really proud. So humbling. It's amazing for you. I'm it so really happy for is. you. <laughs> um, turning a bit to the WPP in your life. Yes. Um, what fight do you think WPP is in today? I mean, it's a brand made up of lots of other brands. So some of your brands are hundreds of years old. Some of them are decades old. But as an ensemble, what fight do you think you're in today? So look, the thing for me is, I think it's about evolution rather than a fight. Because a fight makes it sound as though there's always going to be a winner and a loser. Mm. Um And whether that's, you know, new entries and challenger brands coming into a market or brands that have been there for some time and have dominated for some time. For for me, I think for WPP, it's an evolution of where we are. And it is that evolution in order to make sure that we continue to help our clients grow. I mean, that's a very broad fight. Is there something in particular that's keeping you up at night in terms of kind of you know your two your your two big jobs what what do you think oh geez you know look the, the thing that's the thing that I worry about at the moment is the constant in and out of the office and making mm. sure that we are a united team and one team given the restrictions that we have um in the UK and whether we're working from home working in the office I've sort of said we've now all moonwalked back out of the office again, back to our homes. And <laughs> are, we're you back, are you closed home. down again? They are still open for those that really need to go in for essential tasks. But, you know, we are working from home again. So the majority of us are working from home and maybe going in one day a week, two days a week for yeah. those essential tasks. Um, and that's the bit that making sure that we still work as a cohesive team. I, you know, I just had a WhatsApp message from my chair at Group M talking about 
a TV buying um, meeting that he's having across four agencies with some people in the office, some people at home. How do you make that work where, you know, it's not a consistent platform for all of us? So that's that's the bit that keeps me up at night. How do we make sure that we are still one team, still delivering, whilst we have, you know, some in the office, some out of the office? How do we make sure we're all on the same page and given equal share of voice? Um, yeah. for input and have you come up with any brilliant tips that you'd like to maybe sh- share with us now because I know you took over um, the country During, manager job yes well country manager job I've had for two and a half years it was the group m job which was right before lockdown wasn't it so you've well, never the, met your team well <laughs> you haven't spent a lot of time with your team face to face have you Look, the official start date of the Group M role was the 20th of April, but <laughs> I was announced on the 6th of March and that was it. You sort of, I started there and then because lockdown then happened on the 23rd of March. So um, the thing that I have learned, I've learned a lot about leadership actually um, during the pandemic and about how you lead when you don't have that FaceTime with people in person. The need to be visible and present, really important. So I was doing lots of calls to all of Group M um, to sort of talk them through what we were doing. The need for clarity and simplicity, oh my God, really important. But also to be able to pick pick up on those small cues in FaceTime when we're like this to see when somebody's not okay. To be able to spot it um, just from how somebody's looking or from what they say or their language or their body language just to pick up when somebody's not okay, because this has been difficult for everyone. It doesn't matter if you're a parent, if you're married, if you're single, if you're what age demographic you are, this has been hard for everyone. And being more attuned to people's well-being, I think, has been a lesson to all of us. It really has been. And the lessons aren't done yet. I think this is just no. one phase. I think we're going to keep, you know, everyone keeps talking about the new normal or going back to the way things where I don't think we'll ever go back to that no. way. I think this is a permanent shift in in how teams need to be led, how people want to work, and how people collaborate. And I think especially in an industry like ours where, you know, collaboration and creativity are done often in the room, face to face, it'll be fascinating to see. You know, I'm I'm an optimist. I think good things will come out of it. I think Absolutely. we will it'll push us to be more innovative and more and more creative, but I think that the road to get there is going to be very bumpy. And look, I hope, and it, and this is going to sound weird, but I really do hope that at some that we use this opportunity and and the lessons learned to help level the playing field and give equity to more people, because some of those huge big global roles have been out of reach of some of the people because they've not been able to travel one week in every month or two weeks in every month because of their own personal situation. We have proved for the last six months that you can still perform, that you can still lead, that you can still deliver without the need to be traveling. I'm hoping that we get equity, that we can actually see more women moving into those roles because we can lead, we do lead, and it's not all about travel. Of course, FaceTime is really important, but I'm hoping that this new model of working allows us to see more leadership, which is a different source of leadership coming through into those big global roles. You're listening to Fight Back, the innovation podcast. You come from an agency culture background and, you know, communications agencies have had a reputation for years as being a a hard place to work, 
right? You know, there, there's, there's always some, something or something online in some article about the weekend culture, the pitching culture, and something, you know, generally for, for the young, right? It's something you do when you're young and you can give up four weekends in a row because you don't have kids and you can work till three o'clock in the morning. And, and that culture is, is really on a knife edge, isn't it, at the moment? I mean, have you seen that change in, in, in COVID? Look, I think we've all had to learn how to blend our work life. And I always say work life blend rather than work life balance. Mm -hmm. And that has been a new lesson and learning for all of us to make sure that we are disciplined at home, that, you know, work doesn't creep into after hours because we are sat at home. And that, you know, that's one of the lessons that I've learned during lockdown, how to be more disciplined. Uh, and to ensure that I'm, st- and you know, I'm a single mum to a ten-year-old boy, and to make sure that I'm still focused on his remote learning and eleven pluses coming up, as I am on my two jobs, and I have to say, we've, I think, it has forced more creativity in terms of how we look at pitching because. We are fortunate that we have been in an industry, Robin, where our industry is still going, mm-hmm. even though it may have slowed down and it may have, you know, gone backwards for a bit. Our industry is still going, whereas other industries have been decimated by the pandemic. And it's forced, and I think there's nothing like a crisis to force even better, bigger problem solving and creativity. And it's absolutely done that. How can we deliver and collaborate and do a pitch which keeps people engaged on a screen? For an hour and a half or an you know two hours, how do you do that? How do you get your point of view across when you're not in the room and, and I think it's it's for some brilliant things from us, but I think more so now than ever, we've been more disciplined about the scope creep of those roles mm. um and making sure that you know the three and three in the morning finishes and the all weekend that that we can't do that because of how we're invading people's lives anyway. Another topic that's close to your heart is the DNI and the you know the inclusion side of things, mm. and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that under the context of, you know, brands are moving into the purpose space quite a lot. It's it's become quite central to how brands want to grow and how they mm-hmm. want to connect with consumers. And I'm wondering if you have a point of view on how um, you know diversity and inclusion are kind of forming part of that message outwards, but perhaps not always being reflected inwards within brands. Yeah. Uh, uh, look, this is something that I've said a lot and I will repeatedly say it until everyone gets the message. Diversity is not a problem to fix. It's the solution. And it's the solution to growth because we are all in the business of growth. And in order to continue to grow and future-proof your business, you have to understand where your growth audiences are. So, of course, inclusion, diversity and belonging, absolutely the right things to do for society. It's good for your soul, but it's also good for your bottom line because you need to understand who your audience is and where potential growth comes from. And I talk about the UK because obviously I work in the UK. That is my market. And I talk about the UK being a brilliant fruit salad of people. And in order to connect our clients brands or products with the audience of the UK you have to understand them you have to understand their journey you have to really understand authentic insights about the consumers that we're trying to talk to to really build trust and engage and in order to do that you might need some people who are diverse in your own organizations to help 
talk about the stories, reflect the stories, showcase the stories of the audience of the UK. So I see too much happening at the end stages of a process when it comes to casting that people suddenly remember, oh, we've got to, we've got to try and reflect our potential growth audience. And you make casting decisions in a story which is not authentic. And that is absolutely the wrong thing to do. It's about getting those authentic stories at the get-go to make sure that we are creating whatever the piece of content may be, something which appeals. So it, it, it's it's good for your bottom line. I don't know any organisation that if they were told, you know, you can improve your revenue or net sales by 35% or by, you know, um, 22% if you did X. I don't know any organisation that wouldn't do it. It's the same when it comes to all forms of diversity, whether that's gender, race, whether that's about social mobility. If you literally have the ability to make your organisation more profitable by appealing to a broader sense of people, why wouldn't you do it? I just don't understand why you wouldn't do it. It's hard to do. Don't get me wrong. This isn't easy. It's hard to do, but I just don't understand why my more organisations aren't there yet. And we still have a way to go in terms of organisations understanding the benefits that this can unlock. And it's not, it's not easy, but the effort is worth the output. Are there any brands out there that you think are starting to get it right, including WPP or the you know, brands within the family? Look, I, I think the events of the summer have been a catalyst for us to do more on race. I think there's loads of organisations that are already on the journey when it comes to gender, but there's that weird British thing that we're uncomfortable talking about race. It's mm. one of those uncomfortable conversations and there was a brilliant stat from uh, business in the community with their race at work survey that said that 38% of employees believe that their employer is uncomfortable talking about race. And we just now have to put it on the agenda of every single decision making board in any organisation, because that's a huge issue. So, you know, I can talk about loads of companies as well as, you know, including WPP that are doing lots to sort of look at the gender fight you know, cat. You know, the catalyst is organisations like the Thirty Percent Club, the Davis Report, loads of organisations. Whether that's a Unilever, whether that's a Diageo, that are doing loads when it comes to gender. I can't name one organisation that's getting it right when it comes to race. Wow, not one. And I think that says a lot. Not one. So I think we're all on that journey, and we need to make it a collective journey to do more. And as I said, the events of the summer and the appalling atrocities of the killing of George Floyd and so many others in the US has acted as a massive catalyst for us to do more and for brands to take action, not just stand by and post a load of supportive words, but mm. action. A lot of brands boycotted Facebook in support of you know, Black Lives Matter. And obviously media agencies would have been part of that decision-making process, one assumes. Mm. Do you think that's an effective tool to, to change things? When it came to the ban of, you know, brands using Facebook, I mean, we have tried to work with Facebook, and I think that's a really important important point as well. When you see organisations which are facing certain challenges, you have to talk to them to try and help, to try and discuss what more can be done or what it is that they're doing and where you can help. 
And, you know, the decision for some of our client brands to ban going on Facebook was the decision that they made at the top of their, you know, decision-making boards and their organisations. But I'm really focused on what it is that's going to make real sustainable change. And that's where I want to see effort and focus, sustainable change. I don't know the answer to what actually changed. My guess is probably nothing, <laughs> um, you know, as, as with so many of these things. And that's, I guess that's what makes it hard. It's, it's brands balancing the, you know, especially in the middle of a, of a global crisis, the need for growth, the need for sales versus the need to do the right thing. And, and what's incredibly sad is that those two things seem to have been up, you know, for many years, mutually exclusive. There doesn't mm. seem to be a, a path where both can be embraced. You know, are there any brands out there who are getting it right? You know, as we see consumers, certainly over the summer and and through the COVID kind of, kind of, you know, COVID season, I guess, um, lots of consumers have been voting with their wallets around supporting brands who are more vocal about what they're doing, doing the right thing. Um, do, are there any brands out there that you see that you would kind of point to doing the right thing, Karen? Look, I, I think there was a brilliant piece of research, which was done by Cantor, actually, that talked about the brands that were winning during COVID weren't necessarily those that showed empathy and sympathy to the situation, but those which were more practical, giving practical help and advice about the situation, rather than we'll all get through it together. Uh, and, you know, some of the simple sort of messages in terms of what to do. So I think one of the ads was, um, and again, I'm just talking from a UK perspective, was the ad from Tesco, which just showed people what was being done in terms of safety measures in store for people. Mm -hmm. And it sounds really simple, but, it you know, showing that, you know, two metres distance, wiping of the handlebars of the trolley, making sure that there were screens for the people at the checkout, which was the practical side of this is being done rather than the, we'll all come through it together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there was a famous montage, wasn't there, of all the ads that came out right at the beginning with, you know, cue somber music, yes. cue message, we're here for you, cue, yeah. we'll all get through this. And there were, you know, there were hundreds of them. It was, which it became was, like wallpaper. Yeah. It was, it was quite a sad moment for the industry. I thought, surely we can do better than this. I know. I know. So, but I did also like, and, and again, I, I, I really liked some of the brands and ads which showed real people and mm. real consumers. So, yeah. I, I mean, I've got a particular fondness for some of the nationwide ads uh, and the variety of people that they show in the nationwide ads, talking about their own journeys and what they've learned during lockdown uh, in lovely written word and spoken word. Um, so I've got a particular fondness for those because I just think they're beautiful ads. Yeah. Um, but then at the same time, you know, I still like the ads that didn't even mention COVID mm. and just entertained us um, because that's, you know, that takes, that was the escapism and uh, gave you a sense of joy. So I still have beautiful ads that, you know, are ads which I think are brilliant, um, which aren't necessary from this period of time. But I think those which crowdsourced and showed real people and those which gave more practical help and information were those that yeah. came good during this period. This is Fight Back, the innovation podcast. A couple of more questions, I guess, just to kind of round things off. I mean, you, you're a real 
change leader, at least that's my perception of you, that you're 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 the kind of leader who's there to change things. Um, where do you get your inspiration from? How do you where do you draw inspiration from to be that kind of change? I have always been taught to keep your network wide and varied because magic can happen when you bring different parts of your network together. So I love the advertising industry, but I also have a broad range of cheerleaders and people that I interact with from without outside our in- industry. And that's where I get my inspiration from, seeing what's happening in related worlds. That's amazing. I always say being nosy is always a really good trait and you yeah. know, being curious about what's going on. What's going on over there? And you know, what, is, what are they talking about? I think as well, you know, I, I do it in a slightly different way from a kind of you know, digital trolling of the internet and talking to people. But I do think that if you have that fundamental interest in the world around you that it will always spark inspiration always something you can bring back and i'm just going to ask you one final question which is what excites you most about the future of agencies in the communications industry what 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 kind of makes you smile the way i can see you smiling now when i ask the question uh, look what really excites me is you know after 25 plus years of banging on about how we need to be more diverse and inclusive as an industry I am really starting to see that happen. But also all of the developments in tech really excites me. If I think about what has happened during lockdown, you know, we have we have rolled out training uh, on AI to around 50,000 employees in WPP using a London-based sort of startup called Synthesis that mm-hmm. we've used to create AI training videos. That and what that can lead to really excites me. Um, And, you know, we've just had somebody appointed to our WPP board, Tom Alube. He's a tech entrepreneur. That excites me as well. So there's loads. You are a geek, Karen. (laughs) Who knew? It's not that secret. That's a really nice place to leave things. I want to really thank you for taking the time to chat to us today. It's been a fascinating conversation and I'm I'm kind of coming away kind of really chuffed and, and inspired. It's been an absolute pleasure. And that's all we have for this episode. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a review and subscribe. We'd love to know what you think. Thanks to my guests this week, to the lovely team at Something Else for producing, and for AAR for all your support. See you soon.